Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a story by Emily Friedenrich, who reflects on the making of her book, Almost Lost Arts. Here's more from Emily. My name is Emily Friedenrich. I'm an art writer and researcher living in Seattle. I'm also the author of Almost Lost Arts, Traditional Crafts and the Artisans Keeping Them Alive, which released from Chronicle Books in the fall of 2019. This book is a celebration of craft and creative practices that could disappear without the dedication of the 40-plus individuals that I interviewed. These include an antiquarian horologist in Seattle and a traditional weaver in Cyprus, the oldest bronze foundry in Italy, and even the last cassette tape manufacturer left standing in Springfield, Missouri. For every maker, their work today is the result of thousands of hours of time and patience and slow accumulation of skill. And what I love the most about their stories is that these are human stories at the end of the day. Like Weaver Porfirio Gutierrez, whose rainbow of yarns appear on the cover of this book. He's originally from Oaxaca, and his family revived Zapotec recipes for indigenous plant dyes like bold indigo, sunny yellow from tree lichen, and vivid red from cochineal beetles. Foraging for plant life, spinning and dyeing yarns, and weaving new designs from traditional methods connect Porfirio more deeply with his ancestors. Or how Albuquerque artist Joanna Keen Lopez explores her role as one of New Mexico's few on Haradora, which means adobe plasterists. Joanna incorporates adobe techniques passed down through generations into her sculptural practice, and she also lends time teaching adobe and restoring old homes and buildings in her community. Or in Japan, where Muneaki Shimode is a third-generation kintsugi-shi. Kintsugi, or golden joinery, is a method of repairing broken ceramics using rice lacquer and gold powder. This means that every former crack becomes highlighted in gleaming gold, leaving a piece more beautiful than before it was broken. There will always be new and better materials and technologies which can replace what we do, Muniaki says. It may not be the best or strongest process by any means, but the beauty of life isn't necessarily in the best or most reasonable path. There is meaning in the effort, the practice, and the dedication. Thank you so much again to Emily for sharing. Again, the name of her book is Almost Lost Arts. And stay tuned as she'll be coming out with a new book in early 2022. Now here's my conversation with artist and author, Grace Michelli. The art of life requires empathy, resilience, and a laugh or two, especially now. But after all that we've been through over the last few years, one question endures, how do we deal? This idea is at the core of artist Grace Michelli's book, How to Deal. Build as a weird but honest roadmap from a friend who wants to make it just that much easier for us to navigate our own journey. How to Deal provides a creative respite from the daily dreads that pervade modern life. 
On the page, it's easy to be charmed by Grace's playful illustration style, which features bold colors and simple silhouettes. And you may also recognize Grace's art from her work for renowned companies like The New Yorker, Apple TV, and Nike. But there's more to Grace's creativity than meets the eye. With thoughtful prose and a collection of original comic strips, illustrated lists, and diary entries, Grace renders a compassionate exploration of what it means to deal with and embrace the messier parts of life, both online and off. And in this interview, Grace shared more about the evolution of her creative practice as an artist and writer, the process of working on how to deal in a period of isolation, and what she's learned about slowing down and trusting herself. It was a pleasure to speak with Grace, whose authenticity and humility were present throughout our entire conversation. You'll see what I mean in just a few minutes. So on that note, enjoy my interview with Grace Michelli, author of How to Deal. love to read books in bed all day. I love to go on long walks with my dog, eat at diners and bake. I'm also someone who is, you know, learning to value spontaneity and adventure and doing things even if they're really scary. It's probably interesting to grapple with being spontaneous during a time of stillness. Have you found ways to do that safely? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think it's just little ways of, you know, in the evening instead of staying home and watching another TV show of asking my boyfriend like, hey, do you want to go on a walk to the park or do you want to, you know, go try this new restaurant? I think just those little ways of breaking up routine have really been helpful for me. I think I have a complicated relationship with routines, but I try to kind of add in like playful elements to my life when I'm able to. Well, it sounds like you have ways to get you out of those moments where it feels like a routine can be a hindrance to that. Although it's interesting to hear you talk about that because I'm sure as an artist and just as you've developed your art practice, some element of routine I would imagine is helpful. Yes, definitely. I think I was someone who, when I first started working as an artist full-time, you know, full-time freelancer, this was now like six years ago, I kind of thought, okay, like I've hit the jackpot. I don't have to work that much anymore. I can just kind of hang out and, you know, wait for inspiration to strike or like wait for the deadlines and I can just hang out and not really deal with to-do lists. And after trying to live that way, it went very badly. And uh, I found myself in a really dark place without any sort of structure. But then, you know, I think I maybe at times could veer the other way of being too regimented and too strict with myself. So I think I'm now trying to figure out how to get things done that I need to get done, but also play and have freedom and just enjoy life. As are we all. Yeah. But it is funny to see that to-do lists kind of hold a prominent place in the book. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which we'll definitely talk about, but just as we kind of introduce more of your story, I'm also curious if there is a story that you came across at any point. It can be a book, 
a poem, an article that really made you slow down or re-inspired your overall relationship with art? Yeah. So this is actually like a tweet or I think I think it's kind of been like become a meme also. So I hope that counts. But actually, we've never had a meme. <laughs> but I feel like that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it was originally a tweet and then, you know, it's kind of been adapted into other forms. And I'm not on Twitter, so I can't like name the person that said it. But the quote is, I don't want to have a career. I want to sit on the porch. And I'm realizing more and more that I do not want to have my whole identity wrapped up in my work. And of course, you know, because of capitalism and living in New York City, I'm not someone that has the luxury to just not work, right? So I think it's not about not doing anything, but I really want to figure out how to have creating art and supporting myself be, of course, like part of my life, but not have it be my higher power. We've all been kind of peeling back the curtain of what it means to actually live right now. And I've actually started referring to myself or what I do as being a full-time person because for so Mm. much of my adult life, really all of my 20s, I'll be 29 in November, I've just thrown everything I could at my career. But I think now with even the introduction of slow stories, really understanding the role of pace and honing expertise in one area versus just trying to do all of the things just to say that they were done has been a really critical lesson. And it's interesting too, I've also been reconnecting with my creative identity because originally I wanted to be a writer and elements of that have definitely played a role in my work. And I just got back from a trip to New Mexico where I was visiting my grandmother, who's an incredible fine artist. And I'm also thinking about a recent interview I did on this podcast with a writer named Meredith Westgate. She just came out with a book called The Shimmering State and the novel deals with art and grief, but also this idea of creative lineages. Mm. So as I kind of think about the people that I'm talking to and just the way that creativity kind of manifests in both healthy and unhealthy ways, I'm curious if there's creative lineage in your life and what you've learned from those people or those influences, whether it's people in your family or within the family that you've made here in New York. I love that. I've never really been asked to speak on that too much, but that definitely is present. I think I was very lucky to have creativity really encouraged in my life. My parents both are creative on the side, right? So neither of them had full-time creative careers. But, you know, my mother was a glass blower and she also did industrial design and then my father's a musician. So I think they always encouraged me to, yeah, you know, like take art classes and really to express myself. But right, there was always that underlying like, but you have to figure out how to support yourself. And there was always this practicality to it, which I think was, of course, very helpful, but also I think has influenced me to not always be able to create from like this purest form of expression and often always be considering how is this going to be perceived? How can I turn this into, you know, more commercial work or, or how, you know, how can I support myself through my creativity and having this kind of business mindset, which, you know, 
has allowed me to get to a place, you know, with my book, I was able to say what I wanted to say. I was given that freedom. I don't know like that I necessarily took it completely because I still think there is that voice in my head that's like, all right, but you know, it's like, I don't know. I think that that is always there. So it definitely, you know, makes sense to me. And it is for sure something that I've always been considering. And there's probably so much lived experience that you can draw on just being here and creating your own path and your own lineage in a way with the themes that you're maybe permitting other artists to explore. And I'd love for you to also give a little bit of background on the relationship that you have with the digital age in terms of how it influenced your voice and allowed you to kind of build this platform. Yeah, I mean... The internet has been always alongside me for this entire journey. You know, I think it was how I first discovered so much art. It was where I like found my first art community. Tumblr was <laughs> so yeah. huge for me. And even going back further, like in high school, I was on Live Journal, and that's where I first started sharing my like digitally edited photos and writing these diary entries, cataloging my life, trying to figure myself out. So, you know, even it goes back before that. But yeah, the internet was just the first place I ever felt seen. It was the first place I ever felt understood. And, you know, I think it's because there was a safety of this barrier, right? Like you can kind of hide behind the screen. I think I felt safe sharing my art and, you know, just kind of putting it all out there where maybe to my friends or in art school, I didn't feel as comfortable being like, hey, these drawings are actually like me more purely expressing myself. Because, you know, in school, I made very different work. Like my work was serious and it was photo and video and it was online that I first felt safe enough to start sharing my illustration work, which would later become the work that I've built my career off of. And yeah, you know, the internet has given me so much. It has provided me with so many opportunities. And it's hard to now be at this point where I really feel like I have this fraught relationship with it. And I don't want to turn away from it completely. But I, you know, I really do struggle to show up there regularly and feel good. We're at a turning point in terms of our consumption habits, but I guess in this instance, it's a way that allows for connection to happen. And what's interesting is a lot of people who kind of begin their creative practice or careers online, when they do make the move to do more offline projects, and in your case, a book, I think there is a little bit of a dissolution of the online self because you are getting back into a tangible space and you can kind of transcend platforms in a way. And it's probably interesting to think about how you show up in a space like this during a time of crisis, but also of stillness. And I think how to deal is a beautiful product of those tensions. It's billed as a manual of dealing with fear, failure, and other daily dreads. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the evolution of these themes in your work and how physically sitting with them during this time changed your relationship with how you express these ideas on the page. Yeah. You know, this book is definitely a culmination of the type of work that I've been making for the past few years. 
you know, when I set out to make this book, it was pitched right kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. So I had created the entire proposal before the pandemic, right? The title, kind of what it would be about, because I just knew that I wanted to put all this work together for a version of my younger self, right? I think a lot of us who make work, that's maybe who it's for, right? You're like, these are the things I've learned. This is what I finally feel safe expressing. Just for anyone kind of at like a certain stage in their journey of self-acceptance and figuring themselves out and learning to hold compassion for themselves. But then to actually make all this work in the pandemic was so intense. And I really think it got me through in a way that I don't know how I would have maybe dealt with it all besides that, because I was able to kind of channel, you know, the specifics of what was going on into this work. And it's so cathartic for me to make these types of illustrations, you know, dealing with anxiety and fear and realization to get it out is such a release to like make it real to just get it on the page in some ways lets me stop ruminating then to see it out in the world and to see people connecting with it is just this whole other type of healing to kind of like have this mirror of I'm not alone, you're not alone. And I think that is such a human experience. And it's what I've always been going towards before I even knew it. Yeah, it's interesting because in the book's introduction, you wrote, it's not about what's happening. It's about my relationship to what's happening. And I think that's a really interesting way to put it. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about this idea and when you sort of made that distinction. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it just really comes down to trying to understand and accept like the lack of control that we have. You know, I think I have spent a lot of my life worrying and just kind of desperately trying to control like how things will go or you know, other people's perceptions and all of these outside forces, what I have found so, so helpful is to instead try to just turn inward and be like, okay, I can't force things to happen. I can't control how people are going to interact with me or what's going to happen in the outside world. But, you know, I can control how I react to things. And that doesn't mean I know how to do it perfectly, right? Like I still sometimes have very troubled relationships with things going on in my life and I still worry about things. But I think it's so important to at least be at this place where I can take a little bit of the pressure off of myself to like be perfect in a lot of ways, even in how I'm relating to things, just to let go and just let things be. It's a lifelong practice in itself. So definitely, definitely. And I think, you know, in terms of relationships, there's a strong relationship between visual storytelling and text. What came first for you in terms of your inclinations? Was it art or was it words or was it always kind of an even plane? Yeah. So when I was younger, when I was, you know, a teenager, I think I really did discover both at the same time. Like I started to explore visual art 
mostly through photography, as many teens do. And I also started to discover this love of writing. You know, I have this memory of making this poetry book in high school that was photographs I took with poems I'd written and I combined it together. And I think, you know, they've always been hand in hand. And then, you know, I took a break for a while where I was making more conceptual or abstract visual work. And there was less text, less writing. But then I think as soon as I started to add that back in, I just felt that I was able to express myself with so much more clarity, like that I could just be more honest and and more direct and could just kind of simplify things, right? Instead of working purely in a visual format, I think that can often ask the viewer to, you know, add their own interpretation, right? There's so much wonderful art like that. But I think I wanted to just be a little bit more clear with what I was trying to communicate. So that combination works really well. And at the end of creating this book, what I came away from was that I really want to explore writing more and maybe even explore writing just alone, which was so exciting for me. You definitely have a gift for it. As I flip through the book again, and generally just looking at your work as a whole, there's definitely a sense of voice. I'm sure that's something that's just inherent to your sensibility, but are you conscious of that detail? Well, thank you. And I think it's something I have been very insecure about for a long time, actually. I think I really have held a limiting belief that I didn't have a strong voice as a writer. So it's something that I'm kind of still building up my confidence with. And I think being able to combine it with my illustrations is so helpful because they both can kind of like carry the weight of a piece. Yeah, it's it's definitely something I want to push myself to keep exploring. I think a nice element that really holds the writing on its own are the diary entries that are sort of a through line throughout the entire book. Was there certain considerations you made with those particular pieces? I think a lot of those were, you know, thoughts and ideas that I wanted to express, but I maybe just struggled to find the visual elements that would go along with it. And the diary entries are also very related to my, you know, actual daily practice of journaling. I think that that has been so important to me, you know, doing like morning pages from the artist's way has been so, so, so helpful for me. So I think that the diary entries definitely are this representation of how I do communicate with myself on a regular basis. That makes sense. I want to talk more about your practice, but I'm wondering if first you would be open to reading from the introduction of chapter two, which is titled How to Stay When You Want to Run Away. Definitely. How to Stay When You Want to Run Away. Something I find myself doing every 15 minutes or so is picking up my phone and cycling through the same few apps multiple times in a row. I know there's an extremely low probability of a life-changing email or Instagram follow needing immediate attention, but still I find myself chasing these momentary dopamine rushes way more than I would like to admit. If I take a break from the internet, will everyone forget that I exist? When I'm busy, everything seems fine. But when there's an afternoon with nothing to do, the dread begins to creep in. Being fully present with yourself or work or friends or family, partner or chihuahua can be kind of terrifying. 
I love to look for ways to escape so that I don't have to face reality. My favorite way of doing this is by diving headlong into an analysis of any of the confusing or overwhelming or conflicting feelings that I might be having. I've come to realize that instead of checking in with myself, because that would mean taking responsibility for my thoughts and actions. This was a way of hiding underneath a blanket made from a 50% avoidance and 50% fear of everything fabric blend. This avoidance might also manifest as Googling my ex-best friend from middle school, eating two boxes of Girl Scout cookies in a single day, color coding my books, drinking lots of alcohol all the time, online shopping late at night for a third color of the exact same jumpsuit, I already have, waking and baking and then going to the gym to walk slowly on the treadmill while watching Bravo, asking someone a question and then not listening to their answer, looking up the relationship history of the entire cast of whatever I'm watching while I'm watching it, scrolling through photos of my dog while I'm sitting next to him, hanging out with my friends every free moment that I have, and the constant phone checking thing I mentioned before. None of these coping mechanisms are inherently bad. Who am I to judge? But they also aren't all that helpful when you're trying to figure out who you are and what kind of life you want to lead. All of your feelings are valid, but let's be real. There are healthy and unhealthy ways of expressing them. Are you really here right now or are you just kind of skimming all these sentences? How does the paper feel between your fingers when you turn the page? Have you picked out a favorite drawing yet? Maybe it's too early to decide. That's okay. No pressure. Are you thinking about what you're going to order for dinner tonight or that email you forgot to send this morning? That's okay. Me too. It's gorgeous, really. (laughs) And it takes a real act of slowing down to be able to even consider those questions. With that said, you know, tell me a little bit more about how you view your relationship with pace as it relates to your creative practice. What aspects have you had to slow down in order to really be present in the process of art making, whether it's online or offline? I have lived most of my life as someone who is very impatient, always rushing, just kind of a full steam ahead. And I think in some ways, maybe it has served me well in terms of developing my online presence and, you know, getting work. I think there was definitely something to the pace at which I created work for so long. I think when I first started sharing my work online, which at this point is, yeah, probably like 10 years ago, I was drawing almost every day and posting online almost every day, just churning stuff out, just getting it out there, kind of navigating through what people liked and then, you know, kind of taking that feedback and again, just kind of rushing forward towards, you know, at that time, like what my definition of success was, which I'm really rethinking these days. So I think for me, slowing down has just been about really going inward, which yes, I have done in my work for the past few years, but I think there's still this kind of surface level understanding to it that I have. I think that relationship of creating work for myself at home, but then always sharing it online makes it really hard for me to be in touch with you know, my like desires and what I really want, you know, who I really am. 
So I think for me, slowing down is about trusting myself more and just letting myself feel whatever is going on instead of quickly intellectualizing it, turning it into art, and then putting it online. So I'm kind of like trying to break down that process that I have been doing for years. And it is really painful and it really sucks. And it has definitely caused this sort of identity crisis as an artist for me. But I want to sit in that space and see where it takes me. How long does it typically take for you to complete a piece? Yeah, so I have this long running list, which just exists on my notes app. Um, where I am always just dumping in phrases or thoughts or ideas and I'll just kind of like show up there when I am feeling the itch to create and then can spend like hours just sort of playing around with imagery and it's always in my head like usually by the time I go down to draw it doesn't take a super long time, but there's so much planning for it, right? So I'm not an artist who just kind of sketches out things. I will consider so much, not necessarily color. I think that is something I play around with, especially when I'm working digitally because it's way easier now to kind of draw an illustration in one color and then just delete it and kind of redo it again. But I workshop the words and workshop what I'm going to draw. You know, sometimes it can be like weeks, right? Like I'll write something down and I'll just kind of be waiting for it to like show itself to me or for me to really understand what I'm trying to say with this one phrase, right? And I think that to be trying to figure out my relationship to that and break it down, I've honestly had like quite a bit of creative block recently, which, you know, I know is okay, but I want to be honest that it doesn't come easy to just be creating all the time. Well, it's interesting too, because at least for how to deal, you know, in the introduction that most of the illustrations, if not all, were created when we were in quarantine. And so if you think about the time from then to now, it's not that much to that eclipse between getting it together and then creating a book. I wonder, had those circumstances not arisen, what other impulses would have led to the creation of a book? Do you think that these themes needed to come out because of the time or was it purely in reaction to everything that was happening? I mean, I think it's probably like a mixture of that, right? So, you know, between the time that like I sold the book and my final draft was due, I think it was maybe five months. And there definitely are a few illustrations in here that had existed before, but I think it's 90% of new work. And I think that part of me that like craves routine kind of loved, even though it was stressful in the moment, kind of loved that I was like, okay, I have to do this. Like I cannot procrastinate because I have a deadline and, you know, there's all these other people that in order for them to like do their jobs, you know, the editor, the production, I have to give them all my drawings by a certain date. So I think that outside pressure helped me. And I think that that's the thing, right? Of being an artist and like being your own boss, you know, it's like, of course, when I have client work, that's one thing, right? I can do my commercial work. I can, you know, fit those deadlines in. But I think it's navigating the motivation, you know, just to be like motivated by yourself is the challenge. Absolutely. 
and kind of building on that, something that I appreciated all throughout the book was how you pose questions. It's something I'm obviously very interested in as an interviewer and just in the way that we tell stories. And you really create space that invites readers into a conversation with themselves. And that obviously makes a more enriching reading experience. But if you kind of turn the question inward, or maybe to your community or creative family, as we were talking about earlier in this conversation, I'm curious if there is one question that you hope people in your life start asking you more often. All your questions have been so thoughtful and not the usual things I get asked. So I think I'm a little caught off guard with that. I think that's kind of the idea. I mean, yeah. the slow stories, I really want to not add clutter to the internet. Yeah. And if we're going to have yeah. these conversations, I'd rather it be a slower response than just an empty one. Totally. Yes, definitely. What was a question that you really wanted to ask of readers? It could be a question that you actually worked with in one of the pieces. I'm trying to find a specific example. Yeah, no, no. I can, I can definitely call some of those to mind. I think one piece that's in the book and that comes up all the time for me is what perceptions or what beliefs about yourself can you let go? I think for so many of us, you have just like one time some random person made a comment to you about yourself or your work and you just kind of hold on to that as the truth. And I know that I want to, in my own life and in my own work, let a lot of those go and just kind of turn more towards all the possibilities. And so I think that that's something that I would love for someone who reads my book to come away with. Yeah, like what are the things that I tell myself are true that might not be? And of course, you know, I mean this in like a compassionate, kind way. What are the things that, you know, I don't like about myself that, maybe are not even true. I think that's something that I want to come across in my work of just being kinder and more compassionate to ourselves. I think, unfortunately, like most people in my life really struggle with that. So I think it is quite a universal struggle that only makes this really difficult time in the world just way worse. It's the lesson of our lives now in a lot of ways. But that question and those themes definitely come across in a very encouraging and hopeful way. You know, there's so much more to your work and to this book that we could talk about, but bringing everything that we've talked about to a close, I'd love to have you read one more section from the book, the introduction from the last chapter, How to Keep Going. How to Keep Going. Sometimes I like to use the helpful tools I've learned against myself. Have you ever tried to be an overachiever when it comes to growth and healing? It's the worst. You don't have to unlock your hidden potential or turn your life around. There's not a perfect version of yourself that you need to transform into. I think growth is more about figuring out how to reframe how you look at the world and talk to yourself so you can figure out how to exist in this current reality. It's about getting through today without feeling like you can't handle tomorrow. It's about gaining insight and collecting tools for your symbolic but like totally real toolkit. And just maybe it's about trying to figure out a way to enjoy life too. For me, being a better version of myself means I won't check my phone while I'm in the middle of a conversation with someone who is standing right in front of me. Or I will make my bed in the morning or correct people when they mispronounce my name. 
I will try to focus on the small changes I can make because altogether they add up. Goals and dreams are awesome because they provide a path to follow and a reason to wake up in the morning. But I know that I also want to look back at my life and be like, yeah, cool. I was actually paying attention for most of that. Can you loosen your grip a little? Who and what can you surround yourself with that inspires you to open up for your heart to grow even bigger so you can be a kinder version of yourself? There are so many ways to live a life, but I'm guessing that you don't want to feel so scared anymore. It is possible to listen and learn from others while not fixating on trying to make everyone around you happy. Some periods of your life might require more maintenance and effort, but once you figure out what is helpful to you, that toolkit I just mentioned, there should be stretches of time where it gets a little easier. And yeah, it's kind of annoying that your problems won't magically be solved just because you know better and are aware of what's really going on now. Every day is an opportunity to practice what you've learned, and I'm going to choose to be hopeful and excited by that. Or at least I'm going to try. Want to join me? That was Grace Michelli, author and illustrator of How to Deal. You can purchase How to Deal anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Grace on social at artbabygirl. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.